I think the appropriate word following our worship in all of our hearts should be amen, and so be it. And if we can um, quite often, if we could reflect in our lives what we sing, um, we'll, we'll be in a good place. We'll be in a good place. And, and I, I believe the words that we have today from Zechariah chapter 12, that is the passage that I'm going to be looking at is Zechariah 12. We have three more chapters to go in the book of Zechariah. And as we go through this chapter, um, I, be, I believe it will tie into the, some of the things that we have actually been worshiping God and praising God for, but also asking God to do in our lives. And, and saying to God, this is who I want to be. And we'll find these things in Zechariah chapter 12 as well. Let's look to God's word. Zechariah chapter 12. This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens who lays the foundation of the earth and who forms the spirit of man within him, declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, The people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day, I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot and a wood pile, like a flaming torch among the sheaves. They will consume right and left all the surrounding peoples, but Jerusalem will remain intact. In her place. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set out and destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land itself will mourn each clan by itself with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shammai and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we prepare our hearts to look to your word this morning, um, to get an understanding of what you want to say to us to get an understanding of the the prophecy that Zechariah brought forth. Be able to take your word, Lord, to comprehend it, and then to apply it to our lives. I ask that you do that this day. I ask that you speak to us in a mighty way, that you speak to each of our souls in a mighty way, that we clearly understand 
what you would desire of each of us and where we sit in our walk with you. Thank you, Lord. I thank you again for your Holy Spirit, for the sweet Spirit in this place, for your Holy Spirit that transcends on us, who fills us, who makes us new. We are blessed because of you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a big challenge in front of us, and that big challenge is Zechariah chapter 12, 13, and 14. And so when I say it's a big challenge is we start to read about prophetic words in the book of Zechariah, and the challenge becomes how do we apply this? How do we comprehend what Zechariah is saying? And I want to be upfront with you and you know not hide anything. Um, I am going to approach Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 and approach those chapters from a certain biblical view that I believe is one of the more solid ones that we can stand on. Yet, at the same time, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of other scholars, and I do not consider myself necessarily a scholar, but there are hundreds and thousands of scholars out there that would disagree with me and who would take a different approach at looking at Zechariah chapters 12, 13, and 14. I'm going to just briefly really give you that approach up front so you understand, and then from there I am going to take another one. So there is an approach of looking at this chapter, the chapters 12, 13, and 14, and saying that this is a prophecy that applies to a nation of people. And, and that's where you go with it. So if I start to take the words of Israel and Jerusalem and Judah and, and the tribe of David and, and all of the other things that I read in chapters 12, 13, and 14 and take them in a literal fashion, and, and when I do so, I must take the other things in a literal fashion as well. But if I take them in that way, I can then interpret this to mean something. And the way that you would do it is then to say that at some day there must be a restoration of Jerusalem. We do have a, a, a nation, Israel, that is in the world today in a city of Jerusalem. And, and so with all of those aspects, then I take this to literally mean it's talking about the nation of Israel and the people of Judah and the, the city of Jerusalem and all of those geographical areas with those people that live in that area. That is one way to interpret chapters 12, 13, and 14. Now, with that, you can diverge into two different ways. You can, depending on your millennial views and the end times, you can go off on two different tangents or, or multiple different tangents and apply these things different ways. And so and when I share all of that, I also then look and understand that from the New Testament perspective, we are Israel. And believe it or not, we are Israel. We are told in the New Testament that we are Israel, that we are grafted in, that we are, there is only one Israel. And Israel ceased in the New Testament to be a geographical nation, a place. In the New Testament, it is talked about as in the church. And the New Testament then interprets Israel as being the church and refers to Israel as the church. And so when I look at chapters 12, 13, and 14, my approach of walking through these chapters is to take that approach with these chapters. The approach that God is talking to us. God is talking to his church 
in the prophetic words that are coming from Zechariah. So in all of the chapters that we were looking at before, we're talking about the kingdom of God that was going to come. We're talking about the Messiah that was going to come. We're talking about the advent of the church and pointing forward. And now we get to the point in chapters 12, 13, and 14 where I believe that we are getting a picture from Zechariah of Israel, the church, and what is going to happen in the church age, which would consist of, at this point, thousands of years and then for all eternity. And so that is the approach that I'm going to take and take that latter approach of, of where Zechariah is pointing to the church, especially when he says right in the beginning, this is the word of the Lord concerning Israel and not Israel as a nation, Israel as in God's people, God's church. A little bit more background in this is that in the last three chapters of Zechariah, we have these pictures of events and times. So we get these snippets. It's almost like the, the can of pictures that your grandma has and you go to grandma's house and you go get the tin can and you open it up and you start pulling pictures out. There's no order to them. You pull them out and you say, oh, I remember when, you know, oh, this is the time we went to Hershey Park. Oh, wait, this is the time that we were at the beach. Oh, and there's no order of them. I mean, at one point in the picture, you're 16 years old. In the next point in the picture, you're 12. And the next picture, you're 18 years old. In the next picture, you're two. There's no order to those. You're sort of picking them out. And when we look at the words of Zechariah 12 through 14, it's almost as if he was looking at a bunch of pictures that were laying on the ground. And he said, let me start telling you about this. And then when he was done telling us about that, he picked up another one. And there are these little movies, these little pictures, these little snapshots of what was going to happen in the church age. And yet they're not necessarily sequential. So as we go through 12 through 14, um, keep in mind that we're not talking about this is first, this is second, this is third. We're talking about pictures of the church age that would happen at different points in time. Uh, and another key element, if you did not catch when I read through Zechariah chapter 12, is on that day. Uh, on that day occurs approximately about 16 times through these last three chapters. That's a lot of times for one phrase of, of wording to happen. And Zechariah says multiple times, on that day, uh, based on how we approach on that day, based on what we believe of on that day, again, helps us to understand what is Zechariah talking about and who do we apply Zechariah's prophecy to. And I am, again, taking the approach that on that day is referring to, as Jesus would say, on that day, when the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, was taken to heaven, then his disciples would fast. So on that day. And when was that day? It was when Jesus ascended into heaven and we entered into the church age. Again, there's a New Testament passage that talks about, and on that day, we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. That happens in the book of Acts in chapter 2. On that day, we would be filled with the Holy Spirit, again, starting the church age and moving forward. And using that word, on that day to talking about the church age and, again, tying back to the way that I will be going through these chapters. With all of that, I believe it's important for us to jump in to understand what God wants to say to us on that day and where we're at and to get through this. I am going to go through this in a very awkward way. I'm going to give you that up front. As we go through the first section of verses the first nine verses, I'm going to go through verse by verse by verse and just give you little snapshots 
of what God, I believe that God is saying to us and, and go through these little snapshots, little snapshots, verse by verse by verse. So if you want to jot notes down and say, hey, Ralph thinks that verse 1 means this and, and verse 2 means this and verse 3 means this and verse 4, and that's the way I'm going to take an approach. And then we're going to literally flip the approach over as we look at the next section of verses and just sort of talk about it holistically and apply those to our lives. But we're, let's jump in. Let's go at it. Um, the right hand of God. Let's talk about the right hand of God. Psalm 16:8 says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. My right hand, right hand, whenever we hear about it in the Bible, is talking about that, the strength hand. So with, with God at my right hand, I won't be shaken. So if, as God is my strength, I won't be shaken. And I want to talk today about the mighty right hand of God. With the mighty right hand of God, we should never be shaken. We should never have a concern. We should never have a worry. We should have nothing to fear. And in the first nine, nine verses of Zechariah chapter 12, that begins what we are seeing. In Zechariah chapter 12, we need to see the right hand of God, the strong hand of God, the hand of God, the love of God, the aspects of God that are all around us that we depend on each and every day. And these come through as little glimmers as we go through each of the verses. And every one of the verses gives us a different aspect of the right hand of God and the mighty hand of God. So in His church, we need God. In God's church, is the kingdom of God that is reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and with it we need the mighty right hand of God the strength of God to live for him in his kingdom so here we go let's jump through these verses verse 1 verse 1 is declaring to us the mighty hand of God the right hand of God over all creation it's a place where we start when we walk outside when we see the glorious creation of God sometimes we go through life just looking through the front windshield of the car it's a beautiful morning when God gives us that sun, sunrise in front of us and we see the, the mighty hand of God that is shining before us and is there pointing our way. So we have the strength of God being declared through the, the glory of the earth, the foundation of the earth, everything around us that God has created, the beautiful sunrises, the sunsets, the trees, the flowers, every aspect of it, the mighty right hand of God, the strength of God that's around us. I want to jump into verse 2, where the church is a cup poured out, where all who reject the gospel stagger. This is a cup that is poured out where people hear the gospel message and they either accept it or they reject it. And people will stagger around in blindness, in darkness, in opposition to the church. The, the cup that is poured out by the church is that gospel for all men to hear, and you either accept it or reject it. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord, and with him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And his verse 2 talks about the, the siege, that Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. The attacks will come against the church. The, the attacks have come against the church from day one. We talked about in a Sunday school class this morning that, that's meeting off site that the siege is there, that that. Peter was thrown in jail. Paul and Silas were thrown in jail. The attacks were coming. The, the apostles were, were martyred because of their faith. People would stand up through all centuries, including today. People are standing up because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And the siege continues to come. 
And the opposition continues to come because the gospel message keeps being poured out. And as long as we stand for Christ, Christ is there for us and will always be on our side. Does that mean that our lives will go on in this earth for all eternity? No. But it means that our lives will always be with God for all eternity and will be with Him. Because absence from the body is presence present with the Lord. And that's where God ultimately desires for all of us to be one day. And so this siege that is there. I'm going to jump on to verse 3. And I've got to skim through my notes here and get to where I have verse 3. We have the power of God in verse 3 and where the church stands firm. And so where the nations are gathered against the church, I will make Jerusalem, I will make God's church an immovable rock. And all who try to move that rock will injure themselves. We stand firm because of our faith in Jesus Christ. If we put our faith in anything else, we will falter, we will fail. There seems to be a desire to kick that rock out of the way. God does not move. And we need to plant ourselves on the solid foundation, on the rock that does not move, where we will not be shaken. Hebrews 12.28 tells us that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that we have a kingdom that won't move. And there are attempts to take the church and to move it, to sway it, to get it to get off of that rock. Let's not preach about the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross because that, that's sort of messy and gory and people don't want to hear about the blood of Jesus Christ. There are people that are out there promoting that. But I want to say the church will not be moved or shaken. And Zechariah is prophesying that the power, the right hand of God, the strength of God will continue to be with the church as long as we continue to stand on the solid rock. There is an attempt to push the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, out of the way and the church of God will not be moved. I'm going to jump into verse 4 and we're reminded that the right hand of God stands as a shield of protection around us. On that day I'll strike the horse with with panic and its rider with madness. I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. God's protection surrounds us. And so verse 4 gets us that picture of God's protection. No matter what enemy comes against us, we will stand firm. I want to give you a little bit of understanding as well at this point why I'm taking this approach. This is 2021. I'm not sure if there's any militaries left in the whole world that still use horses. We may still have a a cavalry in our military, but it's for show purposes. So please understand, if you want to go a different direction with this interpretation of Zechariah chapter 12, 13, and 14... Just understand, one of the struggles we have to figure out is, what do you do with uh, Because I don't think horses will be involved um, in many military battles in our near future. Uh, but with it, understand that the God's strength, His protection is around us, that the Lord is surrounding us. I know I pray quite often, and I have been since the beginning of the coronavirus, that God puts a hedge of protection around us. That's from Job chapter 1. If you go and read through Job chapter 1, Satan is basically accusing God and saying, of course Job has a good life. You put a hedge around him. You're protecting him on every side. And I believe as, as children of God who are held in the hand of God, 
that his hedge of protection is around us. And it is God's desire for the church that that hedge of protection is around us, that he's surrounding us, and that no matter what comes against us, no matter what madness comes against us, that God has his watchful eye over his church and holding on to us. Jumping into verse 5, Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, The people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. That's a response that we have. We get to a certain point in this chapter and say, Wow, stop, reflect, think. How good is God? How good is God? Are we willing to say, Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. So do we get to a certain point where we understand with the mighty right hand of God, with the strength of God, that God's faithfulness is to us is so great with all of the difficulties in life, God's hand is still upon our lives. And he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He never leaves his children worrying. And God is with us and strengthening us. And we hold on to God and we have a response in our hearts of, yes, God has a watchful eye over us. And the leaders, the people of the church, everyone in the church says in their hearts, we are strong because the Lord Almighty is our God. Jumping into verse 6 of that day, we're, we're made like a fire pot. So we get to the verse 6, we continue to see the strength of his church and the strengthening of the church. And a fire pot brings to light that we are a, blaming, a blazing flame that is shining for God. We are a flame that goes out and burns the sheaves. We are a flame that goes out and lets our light shine before men so that they may all come to understand who God is. We are a light unto the world. We are the light that shines in a dark world. There are different kinds of flames and different kinds of approaches, but the Holy Spirit is poured into us as a flame to allow us to shine for God. I want to tell you, when your lives reach out to somebody else, there is only there is only two avenues to go. Our light shines out before other men, and they either accept or they reject the gospel message. There, there's the only response that is there. They either accept or re- reject the gospel message. And that flame goes out, and that flame either brings somebody into the church, into this prophecy that Zechariah has, or it's a flame that goes out and it torches somebody And then from there, they're headed towards eternal punishment because they're rejecting Jesus Christ. And it's a flame that will consume and burn the sheaves. And we get that picture in verse 5. I'm going to keep going and jump into verse 6. No, I was in verse 6. I'm going to jump into verse 7. And the Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first. In the strength of God, he removes all social dynamics in the church. I can tell you, when we come into this church... We know that it's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, that we're all equal in the, in, the, in the church. We're all equal in the kingdom of God. But what's even more fascinating in the kingdom of God is what I, I can do, you can't do, and what you can do, I can't do. That's the beauty of the church. And when Zechariah is talking in this verse about the church age, where he's going to take care of Judah and then David and then Jerusalem 
And then there's none that are greater than that of Judah. And putting into an aspect for the church that none of us are greater, all of us are equal. When God talks about the gifts of the Spirit in in 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12 and talks about the gifts of the Spirit, those things all stand in equal to each other. I need you, you need me, the person on your right and your left need each other. And all of those things come together in the church where we all stand in God's presence together. I'm going to jump into verse 8 in the church age. On that day, God shields and protects us. He takes care of us. On that day, I will shield those who live in Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them will be like David. The house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. You may have become a Christian last week. You may have been a Christian for the last 50 years. It doesn't matter. God's strength is for you, for each and every one of us. God's strength rests upon us, takes care of us, guides us, protects us. In verse 9, God is for us and will always defend us. And this is a verse that has aspects that ring true through the entire church. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. This is a verse that is pointing to the end of times. There is a day that is coming. There is a day that might be this afternoon. might be next month. It may be a thousand years away. But there is a day that is coming where God will stand and avenge everything that was against His church. And anyone who does not have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be consumed and destroyed. And all of the nations, through all of the times that have come against the hand of God in that final battle, on that final day, God's hand will come against them and His mighty right hand will come against them. The right hand of God is there for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. All of those verses, 1 through 9, they are there for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and God's mighty right hand is around us. And I told you, I'm very didactic going through verse by verse by verse by verse by verse. Let's move on. I want to move on from the right hand of God because the right hand of God can't be there if we don't understand the right mercy of God. And the reason we have the right hand of God is because of the mercy of God. We're enjoying the mercy of God because of our true repentance. We're enjoying the mercy of God, the graces of God, because of our true repentance of coming to faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Verses 10 through 14. If you read through them, read through them, read through them again, you get to a certain aspect of understanding. Where am I in reflecting on what Jesus has done for me? Where am I reflecting on what Jesus has done for me? Because it is because of the mercies of God that I enjoy the right hand of God, the strength of God. We have the redemptive work the restoration work of Jesus Christ in our lives because we're willing to walk in humility with our God. The mercy of God that's seen in verse 10 where God pours out on the house of David, pours out on His church the spirit of grace and supplication where God knows what our daily bread is. Give us, Lord, our daily bread, our supplication. He answers our prayers. He gives us His grace, His forgiveness. He knows our wicked ways. And because of it, 
He pours out His mercy on us and His forgiveness on us. And we look at we look on our Savior and we say, Oh, what have I done? What have I done? I don't I don't know how your view of the cross is. We can look at the cross and we can say, Well, two thousand years ago, some Jewish leaders, some Jewish mob some Roman rulers, they nailed Jesus to the cross. How terrible for them to do that. That's one way of looking at the cross. It's one way of understanding what happened. And when I say that, I'm talking from a historical, accurate perspective. But another way of looking at the cross is to say, if it wasn't for my sin... Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross. And if it wasn't for your sin, Jesus would not have gone to the cross. When we look at the gospel message that's proclaimed in the New Testament and understand that our reaction to the cross is either one of repentance or rejection. When the gospel message is placed, it brings us to a place... When the gospel message is preached, it brings us to a place where we look at the cross and we say, I put him there. I don't know how you look at the cross. I don't know how you understand your salvation. But there's certain times in our lives where we look and we need to say, Oh, how terrible it is. Because of my sin. Because of mine. He went there. We need to understand and come to that place to understand that it was us who nailed him to the cross. And I believe that verses 10, 11, and 12, when we read about weeping, and mourning and grieving bitterly. It's those points where we realize I put him on the cross. And it's only because of his grace, it's only because of his mercy that he was willing to go there and die for me. And it's the great mercy of God. The song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, tells us about uh, words of where we contemplate the wondrous cross and pour contempt on all our pride. When we think about the cross, there are aspects where we rejoice and we celebrate because we are forgiven and we have the gift of salvation. But there's a certain aspect where we stop and we need to reflect on the cross and understand that it should pour contempt on my pride. Another old song says, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the next words say, Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble. 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 
were you there when you crucified my Lord? And the other stanzas of that song go on and they say, were you there when, you, when they nailed him to the tree? And the next one, were you there when you pierced him in the side? Were you there when the sun refused to shine? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Sometimes, sometimes, it should cause us to tremble, to tremble, to tremble, to understand how great a work was done to forgive us of our sins. This is not a trivial matter. And Zechariah is calling forth and saying, there will be times where the church will grieve and say, what did we do? Now there's a celebration that follows that in the last verse of when you, were you there says, were you there when he rose from the dead? And that brings us to a point of celebration and a point of, of rejoicing because we end up with the hope of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord because he rose from the dead and now we have a hope of glory that lies before us. But we still need to be at a point where we can reflect and understand the great work of the cross to forgive us of our sins. When Isaiah was in the presence of God, and we read about that in Isaiah chapter 6, and Isaiah was in the presence of God, he didn't all of a sudden start jumping out and up and down and say, Yeah, i got to be here. Oh, Isaiah started to cry out. And, and verse 5 of Isaiah 6, says, he says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. I am a man of com- unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He trembled. He trembled in the presence of God. Our reaction to the mercy of God and the gospel message is one that's capped in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, regret but worldly sorrow brings death. Do you, end, do you see the picture? Godly sorrow brings repentance and leads to salvation. When someone comes to the altar to pray, to seek God, to ask for forgiveness, to ask Jesus Christ into their heart, they don't come to the front of a church and come to the altar and say, Oh, I get to be a Christian today. There's sorrow in the heart that says, Oh, my life is full of sin. Oh, my life is just full of it. And it's only the mercy of God that will wash it away and forgive it and cleanse the sin that is there. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter finished the message to the people that was there, their reaction, this is their reaction, Acts 2.37 tells us they were cut to the heart. I don't know what cuts you to the heart, but understanding what Jesus did should. Once we're cut to the heart, it's there at the foot of the cross that we have repentance that leads to salvation. God's forgiveness in their lives. And from there, we're filled with joy unspeakable. From there, we're brought into the family and kingdom of God. And it's from there, we see and feel the mercy of God and the mighty right hand of God. These words of Zechariah and more to come from Zechariah in chapter 13 and 14, they give us confidence to walk as Christians and to walk that no matter what the trials are, the troubles, 
the persecutions, no matter what comes against God's church. In places of the world today, they are living this out in reality. God's hand is always with us. And we can always know that God is for us. That His shield is around us. His hedge of protection. His might and His power are always with us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And no matter what comes against us, He is always with us. And we can walk in confidence in our salvation knowing that the right hand of God is there for us and not against us. But we can only do that if we have tasted and seen the goodness of God and understood the power of the cross. The forgiveness of our sins that comes from the cross. Knowing God is for us a solid rock that we can stand on. On Christ the solid rock I stand. No other ground is sinking sand. Knowing God is knowing that we have Jesus Christ as that solid rock we're going to stand on. And when the winds of culture blow against us, we double down and we grab onto God even harder. We take time to be holy and we speak often with the Lord. We, we desire to be holy. We want to be holy and pursue God and pursue who He wants us to be. We seek a deeper relationship with Him. And when the troubles and the trials come, we seek God even harder. And we push ourselves to hold on to our faith. We keep our eyes on the beauty of God and the world around us, knowing that God is working for us and He keeps His eye on us. Knowing the right hand of God is around us and with us. When all of our friends are turning to half-truths and lies, deserting the faith or panicking or, or falling to evil schemes... We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, fixed on the one who has saved us, and we don't look back and we keep moving with God in the direction that God wants us to go. And knowing that the right hand of God is there for us, the mighty right hand of mercy of God, we walk forth and let our righteousness shine before others, that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. That's Zechariah chapter 12. Hold on to God. Understand what the cross has done for us. Take time to grieve over it. Take time to repent. That leads to salvation. And know that the mighty right hand of God will continue to carry us. And continue to carry us forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look at passages in Scripture that sometimes are difficult to understand sometimes hard for us to walk through but I know Lord that you will continue to speak to us as we reread these passages of scripture that your truth will even become even brighter for us but today Lord help us to understand the work of the cross to not take it lightly to understand the pain and the suffering that you went through for us To understand the great and mighty work at the cross. Your blood was shed for the sins of many. So that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. May we be part of that everyone today. That we have called on the name of the Lord and we are saved. And knowing that our salvation in you is in your hand we will rest in your mighty power you will continue to fight the battle help us to rest in your hand 
thank you. Thank you for your watchful eye over us. Thank you again, Lord, for the hedge of protection that you place around us. Lord, I pray for everyone here in this building, everyone who is listening on the Internet, everyone who hears this sermon in weeks to come, that you place a hedge of protection around us, that nothing will come against us. Nothing will come against us unless you allow it to. We rest in that promise, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the faith that you have given to us. Thank you, Lord, for your mighty hand being upon us. Thank you, Lord, that you have put us into a place where we can hear your salvation message and understand the gift of salvation that you have given to us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who goes with us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that continues to rest on us in our homes, our places of work. I thank you for the supernatural strength and abilities that you will continue to pour into each of our lives. You are our God. We will serve you all of our days. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. God be with you. God keep you and bless you. I look forward to worshiping with you again. Have a great week.